If you need a Bible this morning, Mark is available with a Bible. If you um, don't have one with you, we are going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 as we continue to trek through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. Actually, we're just going to go through 13 today. Ephesians, you thought you were, thought you were in for a surprise. I was going to bite off a big chunk today. No, it's just Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 today. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. We've been going through Ephesians in a series called The Riches of His Grace. The Riches of His Grace. And the book of Ephesians has some phenomenal things to teach us. Teach us about grace, but also to teach us about the nature of the church. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to get to there in just a second. I want you to hold, hold that spot. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And I want to bring up some, some pictures here of some famous masterpieces of art. And I want to see if our children are well educated. All right? So here's the first one. Let's see if I can make the clicker work. If not, I'll just have... All right. Does anybody know... Who painted that picture? It's called the Sea of Galilee, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, by one of the top ten artists of all times. It's, anybody? No, it wasn't Da Vinci. Similar to Da Vinci's style. This is Rembrandt, okay? This is Rembrandt. Now, what made Rembrandt so spectacular, what made him such a a genius in art was the fact that he pioneered a, a method called chiaroscuro, which means the contrast between dark and light. He introduced a stunning level of realism that had never been introduced in painting up to that point. And, and, and his contrast between dark and light uh, was what marked his genius. Now this one here, See if I can bring up the next painting. Are you guys back there? Bring up the next slide for me. Uh, it's slowly fading. That's weird. I can kind of see it coming through. There we go. Now, yeah, the Mona Lisa. It can be the Mosa Lisa, Mona Lisa, whatever. Okay, the Mona Lisa by Leonardo da Vinci. And da Vinci's genius was seen in paintings like this where he set, in forth, he set forth in motion a new method of painting, what they called sfumato, which was to create sort of a smoky appearance. Have you ever noticed that a lot of da Vinci's pictures kind of have a smoky look to them? Because he had this ability to, to blur the lines. A lot of the painting up to that point, there was real harsh lines. And he, could, he had, had this ability to blur two parts of the picture together in this technique called sfumato. It's a technique that softened the lines and it, and people considered him a genius for his ability to do this and to use it in such stunning ways. Okay, the next one. All right. What artist painted this picture? Monet. Yes, thank you, Carol. All right, Monet. Now, Monet was considered a genius because he had stunning he had the stunning ability to incorporate light into his paintings. He was a painter of light. And he was considered a genius. The way he was able to do this, and, uh, and the other Impressionist artists of the time, in many ways, copied his genius when they tried to paint like he did. All right. Let's see if we can bring up the next one. Now... Picasso was either a genius or a madman. You can try to figure out which one. But Picasso's genius was that he pioneered a technique or a, a really a theory of art um, called cubism. And that was that you would take the, the, the thing you were painting and break it up into segments and then put it back together but from different perspectives. And that's how he got a, came up with some of the really weird paintings that, that he came up with, but he was considered a genius. You see, the greatness of these artists that we've just mentioned was evident in their masterpieces. 
The greatness of these artists was, I wanted to go to the black screen. There we go. The greatness of these artists is seen in their work, in their masterpieces, in their art. And these pieces hang in museums or reproduced uh, digitally or in other forms for people to admire. And men applaud the genius of these men and other great artists. There's another great and much grander and much glorious masterpiece. A grander accomplishment that stands also to the testimony of the greatness of its master. This masterpiece has a cosmic audience in the heavenlies, and it will proclaim the fame of its creator for eons and eons to come. And so we're going to read about this masterpiece in today's passage. So let's read starting in verses one, verse 1 of chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. Verse 1 in chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, verse 10. This is the focal verse of this passage It'll be the focal verse of our message today. So that all the things he's just mentioned, this receiving of the mystery, this preaching of the mystery, was done so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to understand the literally the cosmic implications of the text that we're reading today. God, help us to understand that the church the, the, the people of God, the, the, the gathering together and the calling out of your saints is for a purpose much grander than what we normally think about. So God, I pray that you would honor the reading of your word, bless it, and now bless the preaching of the word. I pray that you would go forth in power. Lord, minimize the messenger, minimize the mistakes and the foolishness that come about because I'm a sinful vessel. And instead, Lord, let your word go, through, go out clean and pure. And may it have its effect. May it not come back void. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 10 is the major focus of this text. And it's going to be our major focus today. I want to read the verse again. And then we're going to go back and we're going to build up to it. But verse 10 says... So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God's masterpiece, God's grand work of art is his church. Okay? And it displays and it makes known the manifold wisdom of God. It makes known the manifold wisdom of God to an audience. And that audience is a heavenly audience. Now, this glorious passage has staggering implications. But I want to go back and I want to build up 
to the text. It starts, verse 10 starts with the word, so that, meaning that this comment about the church is the result of something. It is the consequence of something. So let's back up to the beginning. Let's dig into this text and, and examine what the implications are for us today when we think about how important the church is in God's plan. So let's go back to verse 1, though. He starts off by saying, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, for this reason. In other words, he's, he's pointing back what he's just said in chapter 2 about us having formerly been dead in our trespasses, but God being rich in his mercy um, and because of the great love for which he has for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ and, and how we have been now saved by God's grace through faith, not by any of our works, lest we should boast. And how we were once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but we're now all, we're all who were now far off, who were far off, have now been brought near through the blood of Christ and our fellow citizens with God's saints, members of God's household, being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is Christ Jesus, connected to the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus himself are being built into a holy temple where God's Spirit resides within us. For that reason, based upon all of that, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now what Paul was about to do here, he was about to say, in light of all of this, he was about to go into a prayer. He was about to go into a prayer, but his thoughts get interrupted here. His prayer gets interrupted, and he breaks away from the prayer. And he picks it back up in verse 14. If you look down at verse 14, you'll see that this is mentioned again. That he says basically the same phrase again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So this is a break in Paul's thought. That what we're focusing on today is just sort of of a parenthesis. It's quite an amazing parenthesis. But it's a parenthesis in Paul's thought process here. So I'm sure Paul's reading, he's he's probably uh, dictating this letter. and, And I think... He does this a lot where he'll break away from one thought and not come back until like 10 verses later. So to me, that's evidence that Paul was ADD. I just, I think he was. And I, he's, he's, oh, he, he, when he says, I, Paul, a prisoner, okay, on, on behalf of you Gentiles, that makes him begin to think about what God's done in his life. He's sitting here in chains, probably in Rome, writing this letter, and he says, I, Paul, a prisoner, and he begins to think about what God has used him for and how God has blessed him and and given him a gift of grace and what God is accomplishing through the ministry that he has commissioned Paul for. So he breaks away uh, and begins to focus on his calling and what God has done through that calling. That phrase, if you you look now at verse um, 3... I'm sorry. Let me make sure I've got the right verse here. Yes, if you look now at verse um, 2, I'm sorry. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. That phrase, that God's grace that was given to me, is repeated twice in this passage. It's repeated, it's mentioned right there in verse 2, and then it's repeated in verse 7. It says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me. So this is the same phrase he said again. So basically what Paul is pointing out here is there's two major gifts of God's grace that he's given to him in regards to his ministry here. So I wanted to look at the two gifts that God gave Paul, two gracious gifts that God gave Paul. And as we walk through these gracious gifts that God's given Paul, it'll lead up to the climax, which is verse 10. So the first thing that God gave Paul, uh uh-oh, we're back on the paintings, there we go. Number one is that God gave Paul the gracious gift, the revelation of the great mystery. That was the gracious gift um, that God had given to Paul, the revelation of the great mystery. And the second thing, you can go ahead and fill out your notes, is the proclamation of the great mystery. So there's the revelation of the great mystery, and then secondly, there's the proclamation of the great mystery. This word mystery here, look how many times Paul says the word mystery. You may have noticed some of the songs we sang this morning, the word mystery was mentioned several times. Paul mentions it four times here in this text, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 9. Well, what does this word mystery mean? Because I think we can misunderstand it. 
It, it, I don't think it has the same um, meaning in the Greek, really, that we think of when we think of the English word for mystery. Uh, Olivia loves reading Nancy Drew mystery books. And so that's what we think of when we think of mystery. Some sort of um, uh, obscure um, type of uh, uh, hidden thing that has to be discovered. Um, we think of something dark, something secret, something puzzling. But Paul uses the word here to refer to something no longer hidden. When you read the word mystery in the scriptures, it simply means that this is a truth that is no longer hidden or no longer closely guarded, but is now out in the open. The Greek word usually refers to a truth into which someone has been initiated. For the Christian, it refers to the truths which, although they are beyond human discovery, have been revealed by God and now belong openly to the whole church. We think of mystery as something that has to be solved or found or discovered. But Paul uses it here as something that's been revealed. Something that's been made evident to us. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. He's referring to what he's just written about. He's referring to the, the previous two chapters of this book, this mystery that's been made known to him by revelation that he's been writing about. And he says in verse 4, when you read this, when you read these former portions of this letter that I've already given you, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. So Paul is given a special stewardship of God's grace. It's a gift of God, a stewardship of God's grace in that he has received the revelation of a grand mystery. So what is this mystery? What is the mystery that Paul is speaking of? Well, the text doesn't leave any questions in our mind. It gives us the answer in verse 6. It says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. That God, in his infinite wisdom, in Christ, through the gospel, is making a new mankind, a new humanity from all nations of all the world to be his special people, his church. The Gentiles, or all the nations that are non-Jewish, the Gentiles of the world are now being brought in with the Jewish people into the people of God, the believing people of God. And it says here that they are now three things. Three things. They are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. All these three things mentioned here are parallel uh, composite expressions that all start with the prefix sin, S-Y-N, which means together with. I actually believe, rarely do I ever believe the NIV gets the translation better than the ESV. But in this case, I think they did. The, the NIV translates this verse number 6 like this. It says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So the NIV puts that word together in there with all three of these different things to help us understand the unity and this oneness that God has created through this mysterious act of bringing the Gentiles into his people. They are fellow heirs, children. They are part of the same body. This word here of the same body is actually a word Paul creates. The only other time it was ever used in the Greek was by Christian writers. So this was a, a word that was coined to refer to this mystery of what it means to be part of a body, of the same body of these Jews, Gentiles, all these different people being brought into one body in Christ. And they are partakers of the promise. They are partakers how? In Christ. Remember how important that phrase is in the book of Ephesians. In Christ, by what means? Through the gospel. So that's the great mystery. It's a mystery that according to verse 5, was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This great mystery that the Gentiles are part of God's family is not something that was known before. But you may say, wait a second. Doesn't the Old Testament reveal that God did have a purpose for the Gentiles? Yes. Didn't God tell Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him? Wasn't it predicted that the Messiah would reign and receive all the nations as an inheritance? 
Didn't the Old Testament tell us that Israel was to be a light to the nations? Didn't Isaiah say that one day the nations would flock to Jerusalem to worship God? Yes, all this is true, but but what no good Jewish person could ever have imagined was the radical nature of God's plan. Never could they have imagined that God was going to make a new humanity, a new people for himself in Christ, and that this new humanity was in fact the true Israel of God, a people chosen from before time by sovereign grace who embraced the Messiah by faith and are thus united to him and made children of God. No good Jew could have ever imagined that the Gentiles would share in all the promises and all the riches of God. Never could they have imagined that the Gentiles would become their brothers and sisters. Never could they have imagined the mysterious plans in the mind of God. Blessing the Gentiles was one thing, but having the walls of demarcation obliterated and becoming one with them in Christ as God's chosen people, that was a whole different concept altogether. This was indeed a radical and mysterious thing that caught the Jewish people totally off guard. So this was God's gift number one to Paul. He gave him a gift of the revelation of the great mystery. So this was his gift. It was a gift also given to all the holy, holy apostles and prophets, according to Paul here. It was the apostles and the prophets who spoke and wrote down these things into what, what, what we now have as the Bible, our scriptures. The foundation upon which the cornerstone of Christ stands and holds the whole church together. The Bible is the written record of the revelation of the mystery of Christ. This is the mystery for us. Written down, the New Testament in particular, but the New Testament tells us how to interpret the Old Testament. And this is the revelation of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have in our hands. But there's a second gift mentioned here. It's this gift of grace for the proclamation of the great mystery. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister. So there's there's a mystery and there's a ministry. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. So another gift that Paul's been given, and that is to be a minister of the gospel. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So by God's power, he has in enabled Paul to proclaim the gospel. This is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gave the revelation, and now the Spirit gives the power for the proclamation. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Now, he's not being self-depreciating here, but humble. Okay, this is not some feigned humility, but a man who very much realized what he had been given. He very much realized how glorious this gift was. This is a man who is stunned by God's grace, and it makes him humble. Humility flows out of our sense of being awed by God's grace. Usually when we fail to be humble and pride takes over in our life, it is evidence that we don't really grab grace the way we should. We don't really understand it the way we should. Paul calls himself the very least. Literally it means leaster. Okay, Paul was a little man. Tradition tells us that he was a little man. His, word, his, his name actually means little. I don't know why Paul changed. There's different theories as to why Paul changed his name from Saul to Paul. Maybe because he was going from a from a more of a Semitic Jewish name to a to a Greek name. But also this word Paul, this name Paul means little. And it may have been just how he felt. I'm so little now. In the grand scheme of things, I'm just this little, uh, very least of all the saints. So he's little by name, little in stature, and considers himself morally and spiritually littler than the littlest of all Christians. Paul carried about him a perfect balance of personal humility and apostolic authority. We read of that in several places in the scriptures where Paul has this tremendous humility, yet he also has powerful authority through his apostolic calling. By minimizing himself, he maximized his Messiah and maximized the messianic message that he had been entrusted with. And this previous mystery that was now revealed 
Okay, this apostolic, authoritative, infallible message of the gospel. By Paul minimizing himself, he maximizes the message as well. So he's the very least of the saints. This grace was given to do two things, he says in verse 8. Number one, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And number two, verse 9, to bring to light or enlighten, make plain, for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So this was Paul's ministry. To preach the unsearchable, inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, illimitable, inscrutable, incalculable, infinite riches of Christ. The gift given to Paul was that he was now called to present the glories of Calvary and extol and proclaim the treasure that is Jesus Christ. He was to take this glorious truth of Jesus and present it as a treasure in a field for which you should forsake everything else. That's what Paul was doing. He was presenting Christ, as Jesus said, like a treasure in a field for which you go and sell everything else and pursue Christ with all you have. He was also shedding light on the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. That was the second. So he's proclaiming the riches of Christ and he's shedding light on this mystery, on the plan of the mystery. He's already told us what the mystery is in verse 6. Now he's going to tell us what the plan of the mystery is. So what's the mystery again? It's that God has made a people of all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. So Paul preached Christ, but he also preached that Christ has a people. Christ has a church. So Paul's been given gifts by the grace of God. Two gifts. One, the revelation of the mystery. Two, the proclamation of the, of the mystery. And his ministry is a gift given to him for what purpose? To proclaim something. To, 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 to point out that God has a purpose and a plan for this mystery. And that's where we get to verse 10. So that, so that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Quite simply this. The purpose for God granting the revelation of the great mystery and the gospel and having that mystery proclaimed to the nations was and is to create a people through whom God will be magnified on a cosmic scale. So Paul has two gifts. He has this gift of revelation. We have revelation and we have proclamation. Why? So that God's plan can be made known. And what was his plan? Was to create a people through whom God will be magnified on a cosmic scale. Who are these people? They are the church. It says, through the church. This verse should absolutely and totally crush any tiny view we have of the church. If you have a view that the church is not important, that the church is something I can just do without, the common thing a preacher will hear when he asks someone, hey, do you have a church you go to? Well, you know, I, I have a personal relationship with Christ. I believe in God, but I really don't need church. That view should be totally crushed by verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 3. Because God's view of the church isn't puny. It's not just a side item. It's not just something that's to give or take, come if you... It has a purpose that, that resonates on a cosmic stage. This verse elevates the church of God as a cosmic medium by which God's greatness is made known to all the spiritual realms of the universe and to all humanity as well. It says here, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. This phrase, manifold wisdom of God, is absolutely amazing. This word, manifold, it means many-colored. That's what it, it's literally what it means, many-colored or variegated. The word was used to describe colorful flowers. It was used to describe 
crowns that have beautiful, colorful jewels on it. It was used to describe embroidered cloths or woven carpets. It was, its, it's simpler word or its root word was used in the Septuagint uh, when, when uh, describing Joseph's coat of many colors, okay? So that's the root word for this word was used to describe Joseph's coat of many colors. So that's the image here of something of grand, intricate beauty and tons of colors. This is how God's wisdom is described. This is why I used the illustration earlier of paintings at the beginning of the message. Imagine an artist's colorful work. Some of those works were more colorful than others. But within that work, there's all sorts of shades and variances of color and contrast blended together with expert strokes to form a stunning and breathtaking masterpiece. That's the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is the attribute, attribute by which he arranges his purposes and his plans and assigns the means by which he brings forth the results of those purposes and plans. Verse 33 of Romans 11, Paul goes on to another kind of description like this. He says, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. This glorious, intricate, infinitely beautiful wisdom of God, the mind of God and the purposes that he has are being made known to the rulers and the principalities, the authorities in the heavenly places, through the church, through us. God is making known His manifold, just intricate, infinite mind to the angels. Now this word here, this phrase here, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, quite simply it refers to angelic beings. And it refers to the good and the bad angelic beings. Now this is stunning. We, the church, are the medium by which God is making known His glory, and the angels are the audience. Hmm. So the church isn't about me, is it? It isn't about whether or not I like this or that. It isn't about whether or not they have everything to meet my need. This isn't about the music styles. This isn't about whether or not I like the building. This isn't about this or that. This isn't about me. But that's all we think about in our American culture because we're consumers. And consumerism is such a part of our blood that we have a hard time breaking away from it. Even after we've been at a church for a while, and maybe we've been there and we're going for the right reasons, but hey, we begin to complain because something, there's always something. And my friends, if you're looking for a church that doesn't have something that's going to bug you, good luck. Something is always going to bug you. If it doesn't bug you now, it will tomorrow. Or a year from now. Or three years from now. And when it bugs you, and when you come to me, I promise you, when you come to me and you say, I'm leaving because this bugs me, I'm going to get Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 out and say, buddy, this is not about you. Leave if you have to. But this is about the glory of God being made manifest to the heavenlies. We'll add whatever program you want if God so deems it necessary for this church at this time. But it isn't about you. It's about the exaltation of the mind of God to the universe. We're the medium by which that's happening. To me, this is stunning. Maybe it's not stunning to you. God is concerned with you and me and your needs. But the ultimate purpose for you being grafted into his family and you being raised with Christ into a new creation and you being guaranteed an inheritance and a glory is for him to be made much of in the universe. God is the one who's being made much of, not you. You are to make much of him. But we walk around wanting God to make much of us. God, fix this. Make much of me, God. God is the one to be made much of. I tried to draw this out 
So I'm going to kind of explain my illustration. I couldn't, I was going to try to draw it out and scan it in last night, but here, I, had, I, I work in pictures, okay? I, I work, my mind works in pictures, and, and if there's no picture, sometimes it just doesn't work. But th- there's, this cause, there's this amazing circle, okay? So imagine here the heavens and the mind of God, and the angels are with God in the heavenlies. And God reveals his mystery. He reveals it, and there's this man named Paul and the other apostles and the prophets, and he, he reveals his mystery to this man. The angels, he doesn't reveal it to them. He reveals it to this man named Paul. He gives a divine revelation of mystery. And then Paul, upon receiving this divine revelation of mystery, he then goes and begins to proclaim it, shout it out, tell everyone about it verbally. So there's divine transmission of the mystery of God. Then there's a verbal transmission of the mystery of God. And he preaches it to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And and from his preaching, because the gospel has the power to save, people believe and and are coming coming to a body called the church. So there's this church that's formed. And the angels are still here with God. And they're actually ministering to God's people because they're ministering on behalf of the saints. And they're helping make all this happen. And, and so here's the circle. Paul now verbally telling the church. Now the church, now visually, visually the proclamation of who God is, is now being seen by the angels. They're now looking at the church and seeing the glories of God. So the angels are with God, but God uses the church to bring back the glory of his mind and to reveal who he is to them. It's an absolutely phenomenal thing. He didn't need you or me, but he chose by his grace to operate this sort of way. The angels are seeing this. They're watching us. The angels sit back in amazement at what God is doing. Okay? They've been there. They've been watching. They watched creation. At some point there was a rebellion. They saw the rebellion. Some of the angels went along with the rebellion. And some didn't. And then the angels, imagine the heavenly angels watching as man falls. And they're going, what's going on here? Man falls. And they know what that man deserves. Because they know that the fallen angels are getting what they deserve. And they look, they see the fall. And then they hear this amazing proclamation. Wait a second. That, that the serpent is going to have his head crushed by an offspring of these rebels? Are you kidding me? The offspring of these, one, an offspring of these rebels is going to crush Satan and the other angels? Wait a second. So they, this is a, what's going on here. And they watch this happen. And then they see God's judgment and wrath come as, as God floods the earth. Wipes out everything living except for one family. And then they watch in amazement as later on man continues to stray from God because we're all rebels, all born sinners. Yet God in his grace chooses one obscure Bedouin shepherd named Abram. And he he chooses this guy of all people to bless. And then the angels watch in amazement as, as God waits till this guy's practically dead. Before he allows him to have a son. And not only that, he, he goes, he decides to continue that blessing. Not through Ishmael, who had been born first through Hagar. But he decides to bless Isaac. And then they watch in amazement as Jacob is the one who's chosen over Esau. And they're, sitting, and they're just blown away as they watch this. And they watch how the, the people of Jacob, Israel, have now been enslaved for 400 years. And they watch in amazement as God delivers them out of this slavery. And then they watch in amazement as these people wander around for 40 years and are killed off. And the next generation is able to go into the promised land. They watch the judges. They watch, they watch Ruth, a Moabite. Wait a second, God, what are you doing? This Moabite woman, don't you know what kind of people she's from? And they watch in amazement as God uses Ruth to be a key factor in the lineage of a guy named David. And then they watch David rule. And they watch the kings come. And they watch the nation stray. And they watch the nation exile. These people, these are supposed to be your people, God. And they watch them be exiled. 
And they watch all these things. And they look back, they look at amazement at what God's doing. It doesn't make any sense to them, but they're amazed because God's always at work. And that the prophets have predicted that there would come the Messiah. And they watch in amazement as God himself, the second person of the Trinity, steps down into creation to be that Messiah. And they're stunned. And they watch as this Messiah comes, surely now. But this man lives 33 years and the kingdom he inaugurates isn't exactly the type of kingdom that the people wanted, or I can't, I can't imagine the angels even imagined. And they watch in amazement as this Messiah is killed. In horror, perhaps. Then they're blown away at the resurrection. And now they're beginning to see this grace of God in an even more fuller way. They're understanding how the sins of these people are being paid for. They understand now how Adam and Eve were able to go on living and not be destroyed on the spot as Christ himself pours out his blood on behalf of his people and God's grace pours forth. You see, angels didn't experience grace. This blows them away. They can't experience grace. There's no evidence that angels have ever experienced grace. They were punished immediately, those who rebelled. 1 Peter 1.10 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. In the things that they now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which the angels long to look. So what you're hearing, this proclamation of the mysteries of Christ prophesied, predicted thousands of years before. These great mysteries that you have heard preached to you, that you you have in your hand in the Bible, are things that the angels have been longing to look into. And they're marveled by it. They're marveled and they rejoice. They rejoice at this amazing grace of God. Luke 15, 10, Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And these angels are watching over the affairs of the church. 1 Timothy 5, 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. The angels are the audience watching us, watching the church, learning about God from you and me. The church is like a prism. Kids, have you ever had a prism and you hold it up and the light, the white light hits it? And what happens when it comes out the other side? That white light is broken into a bunch of different colors. And now you see what was in that light that you couldn't see before. That's what the church is like. The church serves as a prism. The angels, they're looking. The mind of God is go, goes through the church and, and is shown to the cosmic powers. It's demonstrated the multicolored greatness of his mind. Now this has some serious implications. This should change our view of history. The church is the focal point of human history. No wonder it's called the bride. When, when we have a wedding, we've done three weddings here now. We have a wedding. One thing I tell, the, I have to tell the groomsmen, I don't have to tell the bridesmaids, they've got it, they've got it figured out. It's the dunces over here. Is that that woman that comes in that door is the centerpiece of your attention. You guys don't sit here chuckling and talking, you know, while she's coming in. I say, you watch her, your eyes are on her as she comes in. And matter of fact, as she comes over here, you shift your body and your turn because she is the center of attention. I get onto them when I do the wedding rehearsals. I say, you, I know you guys are all goofy and stuff, but you better pay attention now because that woman is the center of attention. And that's what God is saying throughout all of human history. My church is the focus. History is not some sort of random, linear event, ho-hum. No, my bride, the church has entered in. And she is to be your focus. She is the focus of all of history. 
this amazing verse 10 should also kill the me church inward looking individualism that we all suffer from. And I say we all, including myself. I mean, I, I suffer from me church just as much as you do. I do. There's things about Harbin's that I want to see different because I don't like them. It's pretty bad when the pastor doesn't like something about his own church. I, I want to change this. I want to do this differently. Okay, when the service starts at 9.30 and we've got like 10 people in here, I get frustrated. Why? Am I worried about the angels? I'm worried about me. I don't like preaching in front of small groups. I'm worried about me. I suffer from me church too. And this text should crush it. It's not about you. If you preach before two people and proclaim the mystery, the angels are celebrating. Woo! That's awesome. It's not about me. This should stoke our affections. This should kill lifeless, mechanical worship. I often challenge dads, dads, watch how you worship because your kids will worship just like you when they grow up, especially your boys. And if you worship like this, while everyone else is singing, you shouldn't expect them to sing the glories of Christ. Should you expect them to be moved at all about God? You're not. You watch football and you're like, woo, yeah, oh. You sing to God and you're, Should you expect them to love God more than the Dallas Cowboys if that's the way you live? No. No. And this should change. The angels are watching you too. It's not just your kids. I can imagine the angels looking down and going, is that a funeral or a church service? What's going on there? I don't really see them pumped up about these mysteries. Do you, Michael? I, I'm looking down. I don't see it. It should change. Our worship should not be lifeless and mechanical. I'm not saying you have to be someone you're not and raise your hands and hoop and holler. That can be done to excess. What I'm saying is I think we put boundaries on ourselves sometimes that are unnecessary because we just think we're too dignified for that. We need to be a little bit more like David, who was willing to be undignified because his God was so great. This should increase our desire for unity and kill petty rivalries and conflicts. Okay, I've hammered on that three weeks in a row. This should kill pettiness in the church. You're telling me that God created the church and the purpose of his church is to be this prism through which the universe is going to see the glories of God and you're fighting about that? Really? Come on. Can you not set that aside? Can you not set your pride aside for a second and say, wait a second. This is about much more than whether or not I win this argument. The angels are watching. The angels are watching how we handle our arguments. It should increase our desire for holiness and being different than the world. God, God's mind, God's wisdom is glorified through the church, not through the world. The more the church tries to become like the world, the less it displays the mind of God. The more the world says, wait a second, that type of music and that type of entertainment sure is attracting people to the concert down the road. Why don't we do that? The more the world says, hey, let's copy and paste, the more the church says, let's copy and paste what the world's doing because it works for the world. The less we become the church, the less we become the prism through which the glories of God have seen. If God can be glorified through a Petra concert, nothing wrong with Petra. I love Petra. I love Christian rock. I love any type of Christian music. But my point is, it's not a church. 
The church is the means by which God is magnified. It's different. It's holy. It's set apart. We have to realize that. That takes great wisdom. It takes great wisdom. And how do we do we use videos? Do we use a drum? It takes great wisdom and discernment to think through these things. But it's worth thinking through because the implications are huge. They're huge. So it's worth thinking through these things. This should increase our hunger for fellowship and genuine brotherhood. This should affect how we view the church in general, our, our ecclesiology. Okay, God has not abandoned his church. There's some books out there today that say, hey, God has abandoned his church in America. And uh, therefore, there's other methods. We should be doing this or that. That's bull. If you hear someone say that God has abandoned the church, they are denying Ephesians 3.10. God has not abandoned his church. Nor, let me say this, nor is the church plan B. God didn't have Israel and go, oops, they rejected me, plan B. How do we know that? Well, here's how you know it, verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized that he has realized in Christ Jesus the what eternal purpose this has always been God's plan to let the church be the medium through which he would proclaim his cosmic glories it's always been the medium so there's no plan B there's some theology and teaching out there that will insist that the church is plan B and that the people of God are two and all this other stuff. No. Ephesians doesn't leave room for that theology. I'm sorry. You can disagree with me if you want to. This should, have view, this should affect how we view our differences. This should stir up a heart of multiculturalism. John Stott, who by the way passed away this week. Uh, if you don't know who John Stott is, he was a great Bible scholar. I don't agree with everything John Stott, but he's added a lot to the church. He said this, The church as a multiracial, multicultural community is like a beautiful tapestry. Its members come from a wide range of colorful backgrounds. No other human community resembles it. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It is God's new society. And the many-colored fellowship of the church is a reflection of the many-colored wisdom of God. So we have the manifold, many-colored wisdom of God, and the church is a reflection of that. We are a reflection of the many-colored wisdom of God. Therefore, we should desire multicultural, and we should embrace great differences in the church. This should stir up our passion. It should stir up our zeal for missions. For missions. Okay? Why do people do missions? Okay, we, we have the same gifts. Okay, if you go back to my previous points, we have the same gifts. The gift of the revelation of the mystery has been given to you and me just like it's been given to Paul. For him, it was a direct divine revelation. For us, it's right here. And also, the gift of the proclamation of the mystery has been given to you and I as well. Okay? Obviously, in different functions, in different roles in the church. But here's what the Bible says in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Verse 12, what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So you and I are to be proclaiming the mystery. It's your job as well as mine. And so you are to be proclaiming the mystery. I am to be proclaiming the mystery. That can be done in different types of settings, in different types of ways. But it is all of our job. And when you do it, it is a gift from God. That he's working through you. So that we can build up the body of Christ. So this affects missions. It affects what we do because when we think about we've received this revelation, we've received the call for proclamation, and what's the purpose behind it all? It's to see the body of Christ grow up so that through the church, God's wisdom can be made manifest to the angels. So your missions isn't to go out and fix people. 
You see, I think we get, we have, we're compassionate people. If you're a Christian, you should be a compassionate person. So you see people suffering. You see people hurting. You see people lost. And I think what our motivation is a lot of times is, I'm going to go out and fix them. I'm going to go out and improve upon their condition. But your proclamation isn't to improve upon the condition of mankind. Your proclamation should be for the glory of God to be revealed in the church. You have a heart for the people, but what you want to see is to see people coming to Christ being added to the church. This means if the church, and there's a lot of implications here. I wrote a lot of them down. And I'm going to leave a lot of them. Just think about this with me for a second. If the church is the end game, well, the glory of God is the end game, but the church is the medium through which God is going to receive that glory. Therefore, our ministry, our missions, our preaching, our evangelism should always be church-centric. In other words, I believe it should be church-sponsored. I believe it should bring people back into the church or point people to the church. So when you are ministering to someone or perhaps you're in evangelism context or whatever else, as people come and put their faith in Christ, you are connecting them with the body, with the church. So I believe in church-sponsored, church-focused, church-feeding ministry because I believe that the church is as important as Ephesians 3.10 says it is. So The church has been, from eternity past, God's plan for the glorification of himself, and it has been realized in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one whom is most magnified when the church is doing its job of magnifying the wisdom of God. So does the cosmic nature of the church affect you? It does me. It shocks me. It causes me to have to fall on my face in prayer because I am so me-church oriented. And I don't grasp what God's doing on the cosmic scale. It causes me to fall on my face in prayer. And that's kind of how Paul concludes this passage of Scripture. He said, being part of the church and thus part of God's eternal purpose in Christ means that Christ Jesus our Lord, okay, that, that through Christ Jesus our Lord, all men, whether Jew, Arab, African, Indian, Caucasian, whatever, all men, all people in the church have access to God. Verse 12, have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Our high priest has gone before us and we can now enter in. We can speak freely to our God. Hebrews 4.16 says something similar. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Do you need help in grace? Because I do. Because I struggle to understand the implications of verse 10 of chapter 3 of Ephesians and apply it in my life. I really, really struggle. Because I am a selfish, foolish sinner. And therefore, I am so thankful that through Christ, my high priest, I can go directly to the throne of God and find help during my time of need. We need help. Because if you're like me, this cosmic reality is something so huge. And the responsibility that you feel on your shoulders when you understand that you, in the church, that we are to be this manifestation of the wisdom of God, the responsibility on our shoulders should cause us to fall on our faces before God and cry out in help. So that's how I want us to close now. I want us to close by crying out to our Lord and God through prayer and just asking Him to make Harbin's what He wants us to be. Clean us up, because I think we are a dirty prism sometimes. Clean us up, fix us up, make us who He wants us to be. So let's close your eyes and pray, and then we're going to close with a song. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the very amazing truths that are found in your word and how they just, at times, just sort of grasp you and blow you away. And as I was, I've read this verse so many times before, I've heard, I know what this verse means, and, but, but just sitting there thinking about it, and thinking about it last night, not being able to go to sleep, and, and just making this list of what, if this is true, then this. Well, if this is true, well, then this. God, it can just be overwhelming sometimes. And so I need help. I need help. Because I honestly, Lord, 
There are times I want to give up on the church. It's too tiring. Feelings get hurt too easy. People misunderstand. I make mistakes. I pay for the mistakes. And I just want to give up sometimes. So I'm sitting there tired last night, Lord, as, as I was praying to you, thinking about these implications, and you just said, you're going to give up on that? Oh, God, help me. Help us all, Lord. We're such sinners. We've failed in so many ways. Help us now to honestly seek you and ask you what this means for us. What does this mean for our family? What does this mean for the way I teach my children about church? Is it a place we go? People we hang out with? Or is it much, much more? So God, I pray, Lord, that you convict our hearts. And in this time of response, Lord, if there be anyone here who is not part of that church because they've never placed their hope and their faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and have never confessed that sin to you and in repentance turned to you and forsaken everything else and been grafted into this glorious thing called the church. Lord, I pray that they would talk to me about that, either right now, during the song, or after the service, whichever. And Lord, if you want us to put some prayer requests in or whatever you want to put on our heart regarding giving, Lord, right now as we bring our tithes, offerings, our prayer requests, and we just respond in prayer, Lord, may you be glorified, may you be magnified, may the manifold wisdom of you be made known to the angels who are watching us right now. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand if you would. You guys know that we are in a transition period where we're looking for a, a guy to help lead us with music. Dennis could not stay today, so we're going to close with one of our I Worship songs. So this is a song I think that really reflects what we're talking about today. And we've, we've sung it a lot recently, and it's called Glory to God. So stand if you would as we sing this song. The words will be on the screen. Respond during this time. Bring your offerings, your prayer requests. Or just if you need to stop where you're at and pray, then pray. But let's sing this song. Yeah, you were, yeah, you were.
take a seat because we're just going to about ready to head out to our, our fellowship meal. We don't really have many, many announcements today. If you're visiting with us, the last Sunday of each month, we have a fellowship meal where we just gather together downstairs and eat. I know that extra food's been brought today. We have some extra food. We were expecting my parents to stay with us since we brought extra for them and they didn't stay. So it's kind of a potluck style thing. So it's a good way to get to know people in the church if you want to hang out with us, but um, I want to pray for our food. I think all important announcements are in your bulletin. Um, pray for our food, and then we'll head out to our fellowship meal. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you've provided for us. You provide in so many different ways. Lord, every breath is a provision from you, and so we thank you as we go down and just enjoy fellowshipping one, with each other and the powerful act of fellowshipping over a meal, and that is a powerful thing. Lord, I just pray, Father, that we would enjoy our time together and that you bless our food, Lord, and that we would um, honor you. Whether we eat, drink, whatever we do, may we do it all to the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dismissed. And we pray and celebrate the love that we've been given. But under the shadow of our steeple, the lost and lonely people are searching for the way.